Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. And today our speaker, it's my privilege to introduce Pastor Amy Cheatham. And yeah, give her a warm round of applause. And, you know, these last number of weeks of, as we've had different people speaking here, I love, Amy, how you introduced people. You were refreshing, kind, insightful, and encouraging in the things that you said. And I was thinking last night, well, who's going to introduce Amy today? And Ruth Rice came in this morning. She said, Penner, who's, who's going to, somebody's going to introduce Amy. I said, yes, someone does. So here I am. I get to do this. It's my privilege, Amy, to do that. Those words Amy had for other speakers before they spoke is a picture of how Amy is intentional. She is thoughtful. She is a very deep thinker, as opposed to some of us. Anyhow, that came apparent in a a decision we had to make previously, and she was like, well, we, we better go home now and do some deep thinking. I'm like, what's that? But <laughs> I have things to learn. Amy is a student. She's a learner. She wants to understand why and then do things right and well. Amy, you're a woman of compassion, grace, and mercy, and we've seen that. Amy's faith is living. What she teaches She lives out and practices and shares generously. So give Amy a warm round of applause. Welcome here. I uh, now understand when other people have said, man, to do the introduction and then to get up here is kind of unsettling after people have said really nice things. So I I understand it now. It is a bit unsettling of, oh, okay. Now... Let's, let's go. Naomi, can you just bring me a Kleenex, please? Should have done that earlier, but just didn't. So, you know how in books, when you uh, buy a book or get it out from the library, it seems like the first... I don't know, sometimes two to even like eight pages or just endorsements from people. Just, you know, random people, either other authors or people, an expert of that topic, just kind of going through saying, hey, read this book that you already have, so you're probably already going to read it. But read this book and hear the endorsements. So I thought as we look at the book of James that we would read some endorsements by Martin Luther himself. So... Therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw, compared to these other epistles, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Wow, that is quite the endorsement. Let's look at another one. The epistle of James gives us much trouble, for the papists embrace it alone and leave out all the rest. Accordingly, if they will not admit my interpretations, then I shall make rubble also of it. I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the fire as the priest did in Kallenberg. 
So we're getting kind of a picture that maybe Martin Luther isn't a fan of James. Here's the last one. We should throw the epistle of James out of this school, Wittenberg, for it doesn't amount to much. It contains not a syllable about Christ, not once does it mention Christ, except at the beginning. I maintain that some person wrote it who probably heard about Christian people, but never encountered any. Since he heard that Christians place great weight on faith alone, he thought, wait a minute, I'll oppose them and urge works alone. This he did. Wow, what great endorsements of the book of James. But, I mean, it's, it's in the canon of the Bible. And here's the thing, Martin Luther was working off of the basis. His revelation had come through uh, Paul, the epistles of Paul, saying, salvation is actually through grace alone. This is what blew his mind and kind of uh, started the, the Reformation. And how he had interpreted James was that James was saying, faith without works is dead. And salvation is by works alone. So he was reacting to that. But here's the thing, when you read James, he's not saying this at all. James doesn't actually address salvation. What James is saying through this whole book is that faith looks like something. And actually, if you, if you read James and then you go and look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5, which is um, one of Jesus' longer teachings, you see that actually what James talks about and what Sermon on the Mount talks about are awfully similar. So to say that James holds nothing of the gospel is, is kind of like saying the Sermon on the Mount holds nothing of the gospel, which is, which is not accurate. And James is saying that following Jesus isn't simply an internal thing, a future thing, but he's saying that as we follow Jesus, it translates into different actions, different mindsets, different approaches to things now. The book of James has also been um, called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Actually, if, you, if you're in our Beaver Lodge community group on Facebook, uh, one of the questions for this week as we w- read through the book of James said that, talked about how it's the Proverbs of the New Testament, full of wise sayings and advice. And if we look at the book of James, we can really see that. There is a lot of good, wise advice. And while Proverbs can be summed up about wisdom, I would say, while James does talk a lot about wisdom, I would say the idea of humility is strongly woven throughout the book of James. Looking at all the big topics of James, favoritism, asking God for for what we need, our words, our faith, our works, confessing, can be summed up in this, that increased intimacy with Jesus and the demonstration of our faith requires that we choose humility in all circumstances. We see this in James 4, 6. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself before God. Resist the devil and he will flee flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. So today we're going to look at this area, this idea of choosing humility and how it shows up in one particular area. So we're looking at James 4, 13 to 16. This says, 
Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog, here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. So this topic of how do we make plans in humility is, is very relevant right now. For the last 16, 17, 18, I've lost count, months, COVID has forced us to hold our plans loosely. We've said things like, not if the Lord wants us to, but rather, well, depending on the restrictions next month, we might be going here or there. Or, you know, depending how, you know, BC is looking, we're, we're going to go here or there. Depending on the count in the area, we have been kind of held tightly by COVID in our planning. And right now, I just really sense that at, at an individual level and, and at, corporately as a church, that we're at a crossroads of decision. That right now, as COVID is loosening, it feels like loosening its hold on our plans, that we have a choice. That are we going to grab them up, hold them tightly, say, we're, next year, this year, we're, tomorrow, we're going to go to this town or that town. We're going to stay there a year, make a profit. Or are we going to move ahead differently, in a different way? And so looking at this passage I just read, we're going to talk about what it looks like in planning and life about the poison of pride, the, the antidote of humility, and how do we come by this antidote? So again, James 4, 13 to 14. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to a certain town and stay there a while, or stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life is gonna be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. And so what I see here is, is that there's a planning with arrogance that decided what's going to happen, how we're going to start. These business people he's uh, talking to, actually, saying this is what will happen and this is the outcome. And we see, actually, there's another story that Jesus tells in Luke that that is kind of along the same track as well. In Luke 12, 16, it says, Then he told him a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, Huh, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. Then I'll sit back and say to myself, ah, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? And so this planning with arrogance, this deciding this is what we're going to do, this is the outcome, this is how it's all going to go, is actually rooted in pride. The idea that I am my own master. I determine how I live and what I'll do. Pride tells us that our lives, our actions, and these particular actions relating to planning, financial decisions, business decisions, are in our power and control. 
And as I thought about this, uh, it, it made me wonder how much of the consumer mindset that it seems our society and, and man, even myself fall into sometimes, that how much of the consumer mindset is actually linked to pride? The entitlement, what's in it for me? Because I definitely deserve something. This is what I want and I'll get it because I'm my own master and I deserve this. Pride is sneaky because pride tells us as we look at making decisions, as we look at moving forward, business decisions, financial decisions, whatever plans we're looking at, pride kind of tells us, nah, you can do this one on your own. All you need to do is rely on your financial acumen, your business experience, your common sense. And please hear me, I'm not saying that you shouldn't use those things, right? God has given us resources and, and experience and common sense. Please, yes, still use them. But what I'm saying is pride said, that's all you need. You don't need Jesus. You don't need God in these decisions. This is all you need. All you need is yourself. Pride lies to us and says, your independence is the most important thing. And money equals independence. So you better get money. Pride also convinces us to rationalize certain areas, to rationalize them to the idea that, you know, God doesn't care because they're mundane. You know, God doesn't sweat the small stuff. He doesn't care about that. Which isn't true. God cares about every detail of our lives. And finally, pride results in us separating secular and spiritual topics as if the two can be separated. We'll pray about spiritual decisions. We'll pray about ones that kind of have that, that feel of needing to have some spiritual oversight. But then the practical decisions, we don't approach from the same level because that's, that's totally in the secular. That doesn't involve God at all. Pride lies in various ways, and it comes down to, once again, nah, I can do this one on my own. I don't need God. And here's the thing, following down the pride path always leads to idolatry. Idolatry of self, of what we have made, what we have accomplished, what we've put our hands to, what we can do. It's all about we, or me. We end up worshiping and following and anchoring ourselves in solely what we have made. Idolatry is when we've decided that something aside from Jesus will save us, keep us, give us meaning. And here's the thing with idols. Idols, even the ones that seem altruistic, even the ones that seemingly are the Christian-approved idols, because we got some of those, unfortunately, guys. They still keep us from oneness with God. One of the most dangerous places that prideful idolatry comes is when, we have, when something we have planned or done goes well. And I'm not saying success is a, is a symbol of pride, prideful idolatry. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is success, while it's not bad, that is a tricky place to be because it's easy. We look and we see evidence that we have done it all. We see evidence that 
my skills got to this. My decisions got to this. How awesome am I? And look at the evidence I have. In, in the book of Daniel, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has this uh, dream, and he calls Daniel in to interpret it, and Daniel, um, the interpretation is basically like, yep, you're a king, you're good and successful, but you're going to live like a wild animal for seven years. Could be wrong. A number of years. And Nebuchadnezzar is, you know, he's like, oh, okay. But then it says, and it came to pass, and this is what happens. Daniel 4, 30, 30 says, as he, Nebuchadnezzar, looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, pride, I have built this city as my royal resident. He had success there. To display my majestic splendor. Idolatry. And it says at that point that he became like a wild animal. And so in those times of successes, when we grab onto pride at the end result, there are damages, there are consequences. I don't think we're going to like turn into wild animals, but I think what that shows is, is kind of like the pride comes before a fall, that it has a way is as we hold on to pride in our false idols, we can sometimes fall flat because they're not worthy and they're not stable to put our hope in. And so in both of these places, looking forward and planning, or having had plans that turned out well, the poison of pride can show up. Here's something to, to reflect on this question. How often have you made plans, determined what the final outcome, ideal outcome will be, and then as an afterthought, kind of said, God, bless these plans. There's a better way. There's a better way to plan, one with humility. And we see this, James, he then speaks about the believers of how they should conduct themselves. He says, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. And it's important to note here, James isn't saying that we can't plan our dream. He isn't saying everything has to be last minute and on the fly and just relying on Jesus to the um, disregard of other things. But what he's actually saying is what are we anchoring our plans in? Our own pride or Jesus through humility? And humility connects us with Jesus. Philippians 2 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. You must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had. He took the humble position of a slave. He humbled himself in obedience to God. And so humility is the recognition of yourself in light of God and how he created you to be. Humility is accurate placing in the world. And I just want to note here, just false humility. That's something that I think um, that we Christians kind of do as a way of, you know, trying to combat the pride. But here's the thing. False humility is, is still kind of another flip of the coin. The focus is still all yourself, except in a negative light. 
And so what this false humility can look like is someone can come. Say, for example, someone comes after the service to me and says, man, you know what, thank you so much for your sermon. That was so good. False humility is like, oh, no, you know what, no. You know, Pastor Greg could have done better. Or, oh, I messed up so much. No, it wasn't really that good. Instead of saying, oh, thanks. Man, I love using my gifts the way God created me. Or, I had so much fun doing this. Thank you for sharing that with me. False humility causes us to deflect, play down, speak poorly of ourselves in some kind of weird trying to protect ourselves against pride. But in both of these things, it's still coming from ourselves. This isn't what James is is calling us to. And false humility isn't the idolatrous pride of, yay, look at what I've created, I'm awesome. But false humility is still bowing down to the shrine of yourself. A distorted idol with lies of insecurity, not good enough, lack of self-worth molding it. This isn't what gospel humility is about at all. There's a fabulous little book by Timothy Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And this is what he says about gospel humility. Humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking about myself less. Not needing to connect things with myself. It's an end to thought such as, I'm in, the, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And so this gospel humility brings freedom to show up no more, no less than who Jesus made you to be in all your glorious ways. So how do we come by this antidote of gospel humility to rid us of the poisonous pride? Well, James also actually shows us the way. He says, if the Lord wants us to. This tells me that humility is connected to submission to Jesus. And this isn't, this isn't a catchphrase or something to tack on at the end of a, uh, end of a sentence to make sure, you know, you've, you've done it the right way. There is uh, this movie called Kingdom of Heaven that uh, kind of is a historic, uh, fictionalized history of one of the Crusades. And so we, there's this scene where all of these knights and noblemen and um, the king of Jerusalem, they are coming into this kind of planning session after sustained successes. Overall, if you actually look at the Crusades, you see the Christians actually were on the losing end a lot. But this was kind of one of the parts where they were the sustained successes. They have captured, they have freed, they have slaughtered, they have executed. And they're coming into this planning session. And they're kind of talking about, if I remember correctly, they're talking about what are we going to do? Because there's still a, there's an army that's coming and people are wanting to do this and that. And so they're having this discussion, really, that is like, okay, how should we beat this army? How should we execute them? How should we slaughter them? How should we annihilate these people? So they're kind of going through and you see certain characters trying to manipulate the circumstances to what they want. And then at the end... They go, God wills it. And everyone says, God wills it. And then it's like, that, that's the decision. The decision's done. 
as if rubber stamping that God wills it now means that that's God's plan. And actually, I was reading a book earlier this week about um, the history, good and bad, of Christianity, and, and that actually happened. That was something that frequently happened, is they'd make decisions, and they'd finish it by saying, God wills it! This is not what James is talking about here. He's not saying it's a rubber stamp, a thing to throw it out to then, you know, um, make that this is how God wants it to be. What James is speaking about here is submission to Jesus as Lord. And Lord simply means someone having power, authority, or influence. And so those of us that um, have already made a decision to follow Jesus, recognize him as our Savior, we, we can acknowledge Jesus as Savior because we've recognized our need to be saved from the guilt, punishment, and power of sin. We've seen his death and resurrection on the cross that he made a way as our Savior. We also acknowledge Jesus as healer, and we can see pretty obviously in our body, soul, and spirits that we need is healing touch. That's not that hard to recognize. But oh, acknowledging Jesus as Lord, it's a little harder. Because that actually involves us laying down our pride and the illusion of control. And I say illusion of control because here's the thing, whether we resist or submit, he already is our Lord. He already has ultimate authority, ultimate power. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 says, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. You do not belong to yourself. Does that rankle anyone? Like, don't tell me I'm not independent. Don't tell me that I'm not my own. I can make my own decisions. We get to choose. Jesus is Lord, whether we acknowledge it or not. But we get to choose to, will we resist it, fight against him, push against him, demand and say that the way we are going to do things is the best way? Or are we going to surrender? Are we going to submit to him and acknowledge him as Lord in our life in every area? But before we can do that, if there's any of that tension of like, no, 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 I'm in charge of my own life and I'm not so sure about Jesus as Lord, thank you very much, we actually need to look at our beliefs about Jesus in the face. Who do we really think he is? What do we really think his plans for our lives are? Maybe we think Jesus is good and his plans for us are good. Maybe we think he's cruel and so there's no other option but his plans for us are cruel. Or maybe you kind of think, man, in my own life, he doesn't have much to work with, so it's going to be a mediocre plan at the very least because I, I, I'm not bringing much. Or maybe it's that you think Jesus could care less about me, so he doesn't even have plans for me because he doesn't care. Or maybe you think, man, his plans for me are too hard to accomplish. He has too high of standards. I'll never make them. But here's the thing. Jesus is actually convinced that we can do 
what he's called us to do. He actually believes that about us. When I had that, like, kind of, I read it somewhere, and I had that thing of, like, oh, my goodness. Like, he's actually convinced. He's not just saying, this would be really nice. He is actually convinced that what he has called us to do, we can do it if we are partnering with him and submitting to him as Lord. And here's the thing about the will of God, destiny, God's plans, purposes, his leading, whatever one you want to, uh, wording you use, it comes from his heart. And we know from the first letter of John that God is love. So his will can't be anything but an experience of love because that's who he is. That's how he shows up. And so to know and experience the character and love of Jesus, that allows us to, it, it, to be a little bit easier to acknowledge him as our Lord because we know he is good, he is kind, he's a loving Lord whose plans for us is good. And so in my life, this acknowledging Jesus as Lord, what this looks like is actually out loud surrendering what I feel like I'm grasping onto, what I'm holding tight, what's going on in here, and declaring that Jesus is Lord, specifically. So actually this morning, I came in early, came up here, I stood up here, and I just kind of took a moment and thought, okay, what are the things feel like that I have to hold tightly to? So it was, Jesus, I surrender the outcome of my sermon to you. I will be obedient to what you have called me to not to the outcome. I surrender my need to look capable as everything reopens and things restart. I surrender that to you, Jesus. I surrender the, the future and health of our church to you, Jesus. This is your church. And then I just declare, I declared the lordship of Jesus. So I say, I declare that Jesus is Lord of this church. He is Lord of this service. He is Lord of my sermon. He is Lord of our worship. He is Lord of who comes and who doesn't come. Jesus is Lord of my work and service to him. And it's as I say those things, it's kind of like aligning myself with the truth that Jesus is my Lord. That the things I felt like I needed to grasp tightly to, to shore up places that I maybe felt uncertain, as I look to Jesus, I can let those go and just show up and say, how this goes down is, is just gonna, how it's going to go down. And that Jesus can work through me or around me if he needs to. So we also come by humility, by confessing our sins to one another in Jesus. James 5, 16 says this, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And what this looks like in the area of planning and decisions is, is confessing the places that we in the past and present have decided that we are the masters of. Confessing where maybe you've got, begun to make plans with a God wills it attitude. And we can't come by this antidote of humility by deciding we'll get there all, our own, all on our own that kind of ends up looking like false humility. 
And if we decide that we can work ourselves hard enough to be humble, we're actually drinking the poison of pride once again. But rather, we come to this antidote of humility in a twofold way. Surrendering and acknowledging, surrendering to and acknowledging the lordship of Jesus, as well as confessing to Jesus in one another when we have made plans, decisions, and paths in pride. We need to own up where we've taken the poison of pride and look to Jesus to provide the antidote. Dave, do you want to come up here? So right now, we're, we're kind of at a fork in the road, like I talked about at the beginning. In some ways, we've been traveling down roads this last year and a bit that it feels like maybe we haven't picked. That COVID had, has taken us down roads, and we've just kind of simply made the best of it as we can. However, now, we're at a crossroad. When we look ahead as a church, as we look ahead as individuals, will we choose the poison of pride, saying, today or tomorrow, we're going to a certain town, stay there a year, we will do business and make a profit? Or will we choose to journey with Jesus in gospel humility, saying, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that? So we're going to have one more song, and then I'm going to come back up here and we're going to share communion together. So as we go into this last song, or go into this song that Dave's going to lead us into, just take a moment to examine yourself. Reflect on what I've said. Ask Jesus, have I been making plans apart from you? If he brings anything to light, just confess. Say, I receive your forgiveness and grace. Jesus, will you guide me anew? And so, dearly loved ones, I bless you to encounter Jesus as Savior, Healer, and Lord today. That as we look forward to this season where COVID is loosening its hold on our plans, that we would not grasp them tightly in pride. I bless you with the courage to lay down your plans in humility and acknowledge Jesus is Lord knowing he will not mess you up nor leave you exposed. As you lay your plans down, I bless you to experience the peace and presence of Jesus as you wait for his direction. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.